Age to Practice, applying educational reading in the classroom. Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. From Page to Practice is a podcast focusing on the application of educational reading in the classroom. Each episode features one book or article, my reflections and the thoughts of my guests on its use and impact in the classroom. Some episodes may also feature an introduction from the author. Hi, welcome to Series 3, Episode 11 of From Page to Practice. Today's episode is on the Research Ed Guide to Education Myths. We're lucky enough today to be hearing from series editor Tom Bennett, as well as two of the chapter authors and a few readers of the book. So let's get started on today's episode on the Research Ed Guide to Education Myths. Hi, uh, I'm Tom Bennett. It's a pleasure to be contributing to this podcast. I'm the series editor um, of the Research Ed series of books. I'm also the director and founder of Research Ed. And uh, in 2013, I started this organisation really just as a one-off conference for people to come and meet and talk about evidence in education. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have that conference and one of the reasons why I started this series of books is because I found that education had been for so long um, (laughs) entirely absent from uh, a sensible discussion about what constituted an evidence-informed statement in education. I mean, if you can cash your mind back to 2003 when I entered the profession, it was possible to say just about anything about education. And in some ways it still is um, about what works in education and what you know, and what we should do. You know, for example, like, you know, should children have homework and should, should, should we mark them and what's the best ways to learn and so on. And I remember when I came into teaching after many years working in another sector, um, I remember thinking that we would have had all these questions settled by now when it came to education, but it turns out that we didn't. And that what we had in education was instead um, a kind of folk science, you know, where, where, where people were making decisions and, and basing their pedagogy on gut instinct and intuition and hunches and, you know, what appeared to be, you know, uh, you know tarot cards or something along those lines. And that, you know, as I say, it was possible to say just about anything. And people would say, oh, yeah, that might work. Which is, which is kind of pathetic when it comes to something which is important as how we educate children. So one of the things I resolved to do was to try to see what evidence bases were out there for teachers to access, to try to make their, their decisions more evidence-informed. And I discovered that there was an enormous field of, um, of educational, educational research out there. Um, but that, a lot of it was rubbish, if I, can, if I can use a scientific term for it. And it was basically, you know thinly disguised advocacy you know it was it was it was just rhetorical pieces and, and pamphlets campaigning and agitating for certain almost political points of view and again i just found this really, really strange for something which is so important and which matters so much to not just us but to every single generation that's ever existed you know how we pass on the best of what we know to our children in order for them to understand the, the way we've understood the world and, and hopefully to improve upon it and when I came into teaching, I was I was uh, drowned in, in in myths and 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 dogma about the way you should teach and whether you shouldn't teach. For instance, when I started to, to teach, um, it was drilled into me that you know you had to use technology in every lesson. That it was you know, it was it was frowned upon if you didn't. I mean, my goodness, why wouldn't you want to use some kind of piece of zippy technology? 
um, and that you'd be marked down if you didn't use technology in your, in your lessons, which obviously meant it must be very, very important. And then um, uh, when I was uh, teacher training, there was another dogma was that you know, children learn best in groups. Children learn best when they co-created their knowledge with one another. You know, which is which is which is just nonsense, and it's not true, and it's not substantiated by any evidence basis as such. Um, and, but I also found that there were lots of evidence bases out there. You know, there, there were people plugging away and try, trying to do the Lord's work, and, and and trying to work out you know the best ways for children to learn and, and to, for us to motivate them and 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 how to sequence curriculums and, and stuff like that. So anyway, so I started researching, and the conferences took off. Like crazy. I mean, almost despite my best intentions, they they they, they succeeded despite me. <laughs> and then after several years of the conferences getting bigger and bigger and bigger in the UK, you know, which indicated there was a huge appetite for them, and then spreading to other countries, which indicated that you know maybe other teachers in other territories also felt kind of the same. We decided that it'd be quite useful if we started to launch a series of books that people could dip in and out of, and which would represent not necessarily without shouts and without must, but more a, a series of here. here's some evidence for things that we think may be likely. Because I think when it comes to education, it's incredibly important to be cautious and, and not to jump boots first into, um, you know, into reckless patterns of, of certainty, which we just can't do when it comes to human beings who are, you know, notoriously resistant to being either studied or, or, or pinned down to, to any one cause and effect. I think Dylan William puts it best when he says that in education, everything works somewhere, you know, but nothing works everywhere. And I think that's, that's a very, very wise thing to say, which is why I don't think teaching will ever be an evidence-based profession, but it might become an evidence-informed profession. And that's why we started the series of books. And that's why one of the first books we wrote was educational myths. You know, what are, this, what are some of the biggest, maybe not lies, but just kind of weird dogmas that we seem to have assumed to be true and which just aren't, and which just aren't substantiated by evidence. And there's, you know, there's hundreds of them, but we picked a few and tried to make sure that we that we, that we we nailed them as much as we possibly could. That's why we wrote, wrote the series and that's why we wrote this book. And I'm very, very proud of it. I'm especially proud of the foreword because I wrote it. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it and I hope it makes sense to some of you. Thanks very much and I'll see you in this life or the next. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thank you, Tom. I really appreciate you contributing to the episode. Next, we're going to hear from the author of Chapter 1 on the origin of education myths. Hello, my name's Mark Enser. I'm Head of Geography and Research Lead at Eastwood Community College. I'm also the author of the first chapter in the Research Ed Guide to Education Myths, which looks at the origin of education myths. I wanted to write this chapter because I've always been interested in how things go wrong. And I wanted to explore that in this context of how do we end up with a group of tens of thousands of highly educated, highly trained professionals who end up buying into ideas that are demonstrably wrong, that, that simply don't work. So, you know, the, the classic examples of things like brain gym or learning styles. And I know there will always be people who say, well, I never bought into it. I avoided all of that. Well, that's lovely. You know, I'm very happy to hear that for those people. But we can't deny it was a thing in the profession. You know, it, they, they, these ideas really do take hold. And I'm interested in why that is. And so I wanted to try and explore where these these myths originate from. 
and I, th I think I identified kind of a couple of ways that these things happen. I think sometimes it's because we confuse what is desirable with what is possible. So I think there are, there are lots of myths around things like assessment. You know, the idea that we can give pupils some kind of national nationally benchmarked summative grade on a mock exam that genuinely means something. You know, we can say to a pupil, you are grade six in the summer of year 10. And they are, they are a grade six. Or even more so that, that we can say to them, this shows you are on track for a grade seven. Because it'd be really desirable if that's the case. I can completely understand that it would be nice to be able to tell pupils, this is where you're currently at and this is where you are going. You help them to make decisions about their future. You know, it really is a desirable thing. Parents want it. Leaders want it. It means we can compare things. We can see whether we're doing better this year than we did last year by, by comparing classes. But it's not possible. You know, well, once you start scratching the surface, you realise that it, it doesn't work. The way that we get the, these grades at, at the end of the year on a, on a GCSE um, exam it is by looking at generally nationally benchmarked results. You know, we, we take the results of the whole country and calculate where people are at. Because exam papers differ year on year in terms of their difficulty, however much they try to keep them the same. That the conditions that people sit mock exams in are not identical to the ones at the end of the year. You know, they're, they're rarely testing the whole course. They've rarely got as many exams at the same time. Uh, the teachers will have seen the papers before and even subconsciously will be preparing pupils for what's come up because they'll have gone, oh, I didn't teach this very well a few years ago and then it came up on the exam. I best teach it better in the future. You know, things change. So I'd say that's, that, that is an education myth, that we can do this. And it, and it comes about because we want to do something desirable for our pupils, even though we actually can't. Other times, I, th I think it happens when there's a kernel of truth. So take, take for example, this learning myth that um, uh, pupils don't learn when, when the teacher's talking. You know, the um, when you stop talking, they start learning. Teachers should only talk for no more than 10% of the lesson these kinds of ideas. It's a myth, you know, that you, you look at something, you know, well-known, well-publicised uh, research like Rosenstein's Principles of Instruction, and in there he, he discusses that um, the better teachers actually talked for much longer in the lesson than less good teachers, those who achieved less good results. It is simply not true that, that the best teachers talk less and pupils learn more when the teacher stops talking. But there, there must be something for it to have been so well believed to have had that kind of that pyramid of learning where you know, retention rates 10% if you're listening, but 90% if you're doing took hold and, and was kind of presented in, in people's CPD sessions. You know, there must be something. And I think it's because well, bad explanation isn't very memorable. We, we all know that we've tuned out listening to someone droning on and we can't really follow what they're saying and the point they're trying to make and we lose the thread and our minds drift. And so when we hear something like you only remember 10% of what you hear but 90% of what you do, it feels right. We go, oh yeah, no, that's probably right because I've often not paid attention. But what it means is that we don't focus on teaching people how to explain better. We just tell them to explain less. And we end up propagating this, this myth that uh, the best teachers talk less than than bad teachers. Um, so I think that's another another kind of cause. The third one that I, that I explore in the chapter um, that I think is very common is when we lose sight of the why. 
And I think this is this is really common. I think this is probably what's going to lead to kind of a slew of of new education myths about practice at the moment. We tell people to do a structure and we tell them to do a thing, but we don't spend the time really exploring why that thing is successful. And so the thing isn't done very well. We call it kind of cargo cult practice. So something like, um, let's say, retrieval quizzing. No, we know most of us, I'd have thought, anyone who's listening to an education podcast knows that retrieval works. Getting people to retrieve things from their memory interrupts the forgetting curve, means that we can uh, recall it more easily again in the future. And so we say we should do quizzes. We should start the lesson with a 10-question quiz. That would be a good idea. Well, great, because we understand the theory behind it. If, though, you'd simply say to teachers, start the lesson with a quiz... Well, how are they going to do the quiz? If they don't really understand the purpose, you know, I've seen where teachers said, okay, we're going to do a quiz. If you don't know the answer, look back in your books. Ask the person next to you. Work together on this. Okay, but that means we've lost the power of retrieval, the very thing that was making the quiz successful in the first place, that having to think hard and try to recall it before getting the feedback on whether you got the answer right or not is powerful. That's the thing that makes a difference. If you're looking back in your book, if you're asking the person next to you, you're not retrieving it. You're not struggling to recall it. And so you're, you're gaining no particular benefit. Things like knowledge organisers might, might be another kind of education myth in the future that we should have knowledge organisers. Knowledge organisers can be great if it involves a department sitting around together identifying the core information that they want their pupils to recall in the future and then working out how to teach it and then showing it to the pupils so they can also refer back to it and use it to help them quiz. You know, there could be something really good in this, but... If we just say to people, you need to have knowledge organisers, then they're going to go online and go to some kind of resource site and just find knowledge organisers that vaguely match their curriculum and get people to stick them in the back of their book. So when SLT go round, they can go, there we go, we have knowledge organisers. We have to understand the purpose. And so that's really why why I wanted to write this chapter, I suppose. It, it bugs me. It, it kind of vexes me that we have these incredible teachers who are so often hampered by terrible advice um, which can be seductive which can be easy to believe in because we don't get that time to reflect and to unpick and to really think deeply about it so I hope this chapter at least prompted people to maybe consider these things especially school leaders and uh, and people kind of working who who train teachers who um I'm involved in the initial teacher training or, or running CPD, this importance of really giving teachers the time to reflect on the purpose of what they're doing. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thank you, Mark. Before we hear from some readers of the book, we're going to hear from the author of the chapter called Attachment Myths. Hello, I'm Gwen, talking to Andrew Old, who wrote a chapter in Education Myths and the chapter focused on Attachment Myths. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Gwen. So, Andrew, why did you write this chapter about Attachment Myths for this book? Well, I've got a big fascination with the explanations that are given for children's behaviour, and particularly the way the explanations change, but the conclusion that children are not responsible for their bad behaviour seems to still be reached even when the explanations change. And attachment has come up in the last few years quite a bit as an explanation for children's bad behaviour and therefore a reason they can't be held responsible. So what is it that worries you the most about some attachment theories in education settings? 
Look, the, the single biggest worry is that there are actually dangerous, controversial attachment therapies out there that you can easily find on the internet. And I worry that they may get into schools. Um, and I don't think that's a big problem as it is. But if you don't know what you're looking for when you're looking into attachment, you might end up having some real crank ideas and things that have actually been dangerous and resulted in deaths. Um, so what is it would you want teachers to know the most about these attachment myths? I think just what I've just said was probably the most important part. Do not, under any circumstances, just search the internet for attachment and believe what you see. And make sure you're looking for credible sources and for scientific sources. Um, I've got a slightly improvised question now. Uh, what is it you said? What? How is it dangerous? Oh, right. Well, the absolute worst um, attachment therapies have involved like actual child cruelty um, and it's been things like holding children down um, controlling their every movement and things like that and it hasn't happened in schools to my knowledge but you can find that kind of controversial stuff if you're just looking for attachment on the internet and trusting what you find. I don't I think the only way that that's influenced schools is that there's a, often a lot of belief that there's just like a known thing called attachment disorder that's just like one condition and it's common and it explains things and you should always be thinking about that with adopted children. So that's probably the, the myth that's more likely to be in schools. But as I say, there's more dangerous stuff out there and it's best to know the difference between the science and the myth. Final question: um, Are there, or have you seen any positive uses to knowing something about attachment theories in the education setting? I couldn't absolutely guarantee it, but uh, uh, attachment theory is an established theory, and it explains the bit. Um, it, it does explain some of what you see with very, very young children, particularly with their primary caregivers. So I can imagine in an early year setting, it might have applications. The worrying thing is when it becomes a general theory, theory of behaviour and it's meant to apply throughout schooling. Okay, thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you, Gwen. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thank you, Andrew, for your contribution and also to Gwen. Now we'll move on to hearing from readers of the book. First up, Sam. Hi, my name is Sam Brown. I'm an RA teacher and senior leader at the Fulham Boys School, a free school in London. I tweet as underscore Sam Brown underscore one when I have time, which isn't that often, so I've been a bit quiet for the past few months. I read the Research Ed Guide to Education Myths a couple of summers ago, and I think it was quite soon after it came out, and I found it really helpful. It's a, it's a well-written, easy-to-read book that only runs to about 100 pages, but it gives uh, lots of food for thought, uh, something that has definitely influenced my practice at school, but also just in the way I work with other colleagues. Um, so here are a few things I took away from it, and the first one was the need for humility. So I really appreciated the efforts made by some of the authors to 
to add nuance to what they said and to acknowledge that it, it's not as simple as them just saying that they're right and other people are wrong. But that would be really easy to do, wouldn't it, in a book called Education Myths, to end up full-on bashing um, any anyone that you disagree with. But it doesn't really in the book, which is great, because I think on places like Twitter or also in the staff room, it can be a bit like that. But the book uh, goes out of its way to not do that. And so Harry Fletcher Woods, in his closing chapter, uh, Don't Shoot the Messenger, gives some tips on how to do this. And uh, he says that on both sides of the debate about pedagogy, we need to begin by understanding the opposite position and almost uh, know it better than the opposition, uh, understand it better than them, be able to present it better than them, and then present our own case, but present it humbly and gently. And I, I feel that quite strongly. I think we're all supposed to be on the same side in education. That's the, that's the crazy thing about education debates. We should all have the same aim, but we can get driven into the ground with these different kinds of uh, viewpoints. And in the same way that uh, you've got kinds of uh, pedagogies or specific activities like group work, that sometimes you can hear them held up as a total waste of time in, in some areas. Actually, the book deals with them uh, with a lot more subtlety. So it says in the introduction, it says, uh, now these kinds of pedagogies, strictly speaking, aren't junk science. In fact, in many contexts, they're very useful tools, but they were oversold as if they were innately and intrinsically superior. So that's an example of, of, of somewhere where they're saying, look, it was just overemphasized or it was seen as a silver bullet or it was misunderstood rather than just uh, throwing everything out. One of the comments I really appreciated is that certainty is overrated. So even in a book that is evidence-based, they were saying, look, some of these things are still able to fail. Some of them may work better in some circumstances than others. And again, it'd be really easy to present the arguments in a book like this as done and dusted. Um, the research is clear, the evidence is spoken, it's just game over. But that isn't the uh, approach that is taken in this book, even though they do deal head on with some education myths. I, I didn't agree with everything in the book, but uh, the article certainly raised questions and kept on pushing me back, back to thinking about why we do what we do. And so for me, it'd be really easy to read this book um, on the beach in the summer and then go back into the staff room in September and take a really hard line with other teachers about what is useful, what is effective in the classroom and what isn't. And the same with my own teaching, just to uh, completely ditch any any kind of, I don't know, project work or group work or things like that. But actually the, the book is much more balanced on those things about uh, where to use those things, what is useful, what is not. Partly that is because the authors are aware of the danger of schools going with the latest thing, even if that latest thing is evidence-based uh, and twisting it because they don't understand it. Uh, and so that's, that's the second thing that I really picked up from this. So Mark Enzer's chapter on education myths and origin story is, is brilliant. It's one of the highlights of the book. And again, it's a really nuanced approach to evidence-informed practice because it highlights the, the way that even things that begin as effective teaching and learning strategies rooted in solid evidence can morph into something else. Uh, and the answer to this is to know wh where, where those things are coming from. Uh, so he says, by exploring the origin story of education myths, we can drag them out into the light to be exposed for what they are. And I think I'd add that teachers also need to understand the whys of good practice, the things that haven't morphed yet. So too often teachers are told to do something and only have a vague idea of why, why they should be doing it. Uh, and, and that works for a little bit in a school, but then it comes a cropper a few months or a few years down the line. Um, and so Enzo talks about whole class feedback. And whole class feedback, I think, is a, a real example of where I, I've been thinking about this, just working through 
um, off the back of this book. Where is it useful? Where is it not? But also, what is the theory behind it? What is the evidence behind it? And where might it, even in my practice, have morphed into something um, that I'm doing because I, I think it sounds good or it's what everyone else is doing, but actually it's, it's not that effective. Another way that it's actually um, impacted my practice is about just how, the, how we train staff. So I've been involved with the senior team that's put together our staff briefings and CPD for this year. And when we sat down, our aims for teaching and learning and CPD for this year, one of the first ones, one of the biggest ones, was that staff understood the why of what we were asking them to do. So when we ask all teachers to do retrieval practice, for example, we've made a real effort this year to do sessions on the cognitive science behind retrieval practice. The same with cognitive load theory. Rather than just telling people you should do this on your slides and, and don't have this on your slides, um, we've actually done briefings on the, on the theory behind it. Um, and actually, I've gone one step further. So I've actually explained to students why we do certain things in lessons, why we do certain things for homeworks. Um, here's another thing I picked up, um, and it's about knowing what they know. Uh, this is blindingly obvious, I think, but memory is really central to learning. Uh, and that means that understanding how memory works is central to effective teaching. And so uh, there's a couple of chapters in the book. There's one on the, the books, a chapter on blocked versus interleave practice. And then there's Claire Seeley's chapter on semantic and episodic memory that were really helpful. And just reminding me that uh, the end of the lesson is a bad time to check learning. And lots of expectations uh, in schools, um, certainly when I was beginning to train 10 to 15 years ago, uh, there's a big emphasis on checking learning at the end of lessons. And I can fully understand why people do that. But actually, there are some real problems. Uh, so Seeley says that uh, performance is what we can see happening during teaching. Learning, on the other hand, is something invisible that goes on inside children's heads. We cannot observe learning, we can only infer it. Frustratingly, current performance is a terrible guide to knowing whether or not learning has actually happened or not. Teachers and leaders are at risk of being fooled by current performance and think that change uh, in the long-term semantic memory, aka learning, has taken place. Uh, and I think this has impacted the way I do plenaries, if I do them. Often I do more of a plenary, actually, as in the starter for future lessons. So the plenary kind of moves into future lessons. So uh, ask questions, um, or kind of recap type questions, but it will be two to three lessons later as part of retrieval practice there's a longer gap before I check the learning I think it's also impacted the way I do observations so particularly asking students about their previous learning when I'm in the classroom but also when I'm not watching a lesson not being too impressed when a student gets an answer right a couple of minutes after being taught the content when they're they're still kind of mimicking it and just uh, also just talking to the teachers about it afterwards and talking to them about progress and the way we describe progress I, I would hope that I, I frame that and kind of understand that in a much more helpful way um, here's something else Tom Sherrington's chapter on uh, teacher-led instruction and student-centered learning uh, is, is brilliant so the myth is that those are opposites um, but I think he's got a really helpful path through the two extremes. Uh, so he says, my contention is that the opposition is largely misplaced with a true level of disagreement, exaggerated by poorly defined concepts and decontextualized generalizations. In reality, in a school curriculum that is rich and broad, leading to deep learning, both teacher-led learning and student-centeredness will be woven together, blended and sequenced, integrated in a proportionate manner. So where does this myth come from? It, it comes from confusing uh, the idea that student-centered learning can happen without any teacher input. 
And so he finishes by talking about mode A, mode B. And I don't know, you might not have come across that, but he talks about it in uh, The Learning Rainforest. And I, I think it's a really good big picture approach for for what should be happening in classrooms, but also what should be happening in curriculum over time. Over the last couple of years, I think that's impacted me and my department just in the way that we do things. So my head of department of school is doing a lot of thinking about how we really tap into uh, both of those modes in, in the most fruitful way to keep the tree analogy going. As a department, we're, we think we're very strong on mode A and we're less strong on mode B. Uh, we also think about it within the context of novice and expert. So uh, when boys get to that expert level with the content we're covering, what could we do maybe towards the end of the lesson or certainly towards the end of a, a unit where they could use the knowledge to, to do project work or to do independent research or debate? So, for example, in a unit on the ethics of war that we do with Year 7, uh, we would have a big debate at the end about whether it's ever right to go to war or whether nuclear weapons are morally acceptable. Um, when learning about Hinduism, they might reach a point at the end of the unit where they compare it with Christianity in a presentation or create some kind of tour around a mandir where people can learn about Hindu means of worship. The mode A, mode B is a framework has influenced that because it influences where we put these things. So the mode B things are more for experts. They don't come at the start. Uh, they come at the end. So those are just a few things that I picked out from it, a few ways that it's probably impacting my practice uh, i came away with it still with more questions questions about interleaving and and things that i think still haven't been fully answered but it's a really helpful book i'd encourage people to read it you're listening to from page to practice join the conversation on twitter using hashtag page practice podcast thanks sam now let's hear from emma Hello, my name is Emma Cave and I work for the Whitehorse Federation as a school improvement lead and also at Melksham Oak Community School as assistant principal. I'm formerly a geography teacher and you can find me on Twitter at Mrs C Jog. The Research Ed Guide to Educational Myths was one of the first books I came across as I began the role of teaching and learning lead and this was at a similar time to the publication of the new Ofsted framework and in particular, the overview of research document underpinning that, which we were using in school. We'd begun some work with colleagues on some of the myth-busting from that research document, including things like marking and the frequency and type of marking that some people thought was required, and also teacher talk. My teaching certainly had been awash with myths, as Craig Barton says in the introduction. I have a vivid memory of using a research method with a year seven group whereby I thought that it would not be a good teaching to tell them about different types of rainfall and rather set them off to research and teach each other and I remember standing next to a student um, very eloquently telling another student entirely wrongly about uh, convectional rainfall and thinking that there really must be a better way of teaching. One of the very first things we did based on this book was to, as a school, think about the small tweak mentioned on page 14 from asking, does anyone have any questions? This is something I'd always done as a teacher when I'd set up a task or activity to ask if the students had any questions and to assume that the silence meant that they all knew exactly what they should be doing. I remember reading, uh, leading a CPD session and moving to that idea of getting students to ask me a question at the end of an explanation or giving instructions to allow them the chance to ask questions and to prompt them to do so rather than to just have that wall of silence. 
This is something that we implemented and have evolved over time further into using the idea of checking for understanding and actively asking the students to repeat back to us or to clarify for others in the room what they should be doing. And it's had a really big impact on making sure that students are able then to succeed in their activities. One chapter that was really influential to me was the chapter by Greg Ashman, The Differentiation Myth. I had, for most of my teaching, been making a lot of multiple worksheets for lessons and even, even catering for VAK options in the tasks I was setting and also making different levelled worksheets. And I had received that, you need to differentiate more feedback that's mentioned in the book. But I often felt uneasy about my differentiation as I knew that it wasn't often helping students to access the learning at the same level as their peers, the same level of challenge, but rather I was simplifying the learning in the differentiated resources I was giving them. This chapter really made me evaluate the whole concept of differentiation and even the use of the term through its discussion of the work of Carol Ann Tomlinson. I do like her definition that at its basic level, differentiation consists of the efforts of teachers to respond to variance among learners in the classroom. But I found the conversation about whether differentiation is about accommodation of the needs or addressing them really interesting. One of the key things we've done at school is to move away from using the term differentiation to avoid the confusion around it and also some of the associated previous practice of multiple worksheets, etc. that I've spoken about. In our teaching and learning model, we have six principles and we've underpinned that in the model by a strand called adaptive teaching. And this is focusing on the ideas such as using our students' one-page profiles provided by the SEN department to adapt to the teaching, using live scaffolding, mini-group lessons within lessons, and other techniques like this. This is a working progress, but we're focusing really on the quality-first teaching. And since reading this book, now using other things such as the um, Research Ed SEND guide that's just been published, and also the EEF report to focus on things like scaffolding, explicit instruction, metacognitive strategies, using technology like visualizers for modeling and usable and flexible groupings within the classroom. This chapter was really the first starting point of readdressing that differentiation idea within my school. And for that reason, I found this book particularly helpful. Another chapter that's been really useful as teaching and learning lead is the final chapter by Harry Fletcher Wood, Don't Shoot the Mythbusters, um, in particularly working with colleagues to reframe their ideas around differentiation, but also other previously used teaching practices. I found it particularly helpful, the idea that intuitively appealing or ideologically rooted ideas can be difficult for people to change and to let go of. And an example of that is some colleagues I have that really believe in different learning styles and will talk about themselves as a visual learner. And I could see how this chapter was really uh, helpful in knowing how to work with those colleagues to change their classroom practice, particularly acknowledging the uh, myth and presenting evidence and focus on offering something better to my colleagues rather than just saying that what they believed was incorrect. I also found it really helpful to reflect on my own cognitive bias 
and to ensure that the steps forward that we're taking as a school really are evidence-informed and are not merely promoting further myths that match my own preferences in teaching and learning. So those are just a few of the ways that I found this book really helpful. If you've not read it, I would grab a copy and have a read. There's a lot of different ideas in it and it will, um, I'm sure, help you in many, many ways. But it was, for me, one of the first things I really read that helped me to think about becoming a more research-informed teacher and also leader in my school. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thanks, Emma. Now we're going to hear from another reader, and that's Colin. Hi, how you doing? I'm Colin McGill. I'm a lecturer in education at Edinburgh Napier University. Yeah, I want to talk about the Research Ed Guide to Education Myths. Uh, I'll start off back in a headline story. I think it's uh, like the other books in the Research Ed series. They're a great little book and a great little read uh, and full of chapters by some authors that will really make you think and really make you kind of challenge some assumptions that you've had uh, and really make you examine what you do. Uh, You'll find it full of things that you may agree with or you may not agree with, but certainly things that will make you think and will make you examine your own practice. Uh, and as I said, there's a great uh, each chapter is written by a different author, uh, and they're and they're all really enjoyable chapters. To be honest with you, there's things in there that uh, that really resonate with me, and probably things in there that I don't hundred percent agree with as well. But that's a good thing because it makes me challenge my own assumptions, uh, and makes me see things from a different viewpoint. Uh, it starts off with a good chapter from Mark Enser looking at the kind of origin education myths uh, and this idea that usually uh, there's like that kind of kernel of truth in there in education myths but there's just been uh, some sort of change along the way and it's just that kind of lethal mutation that we hear mentioned so often that it's just turned into something that, uh, that it was just never intended to be in the first place. Okay. Claire Seeley gives a great chapter on uh, the difference between uh, remembering the like episode memory and semantic memory you know this idea that uh, if we create really kind of engaging exciting activities in our classroom that that's going to really improve learning and she examines uh, that quite forensically and I really enjoyed that chapter uh, there's a great chapter by the Bjorks uh, looking at interleaved practice and how that's better than blocking practice. So it really kind of examines that. Uh, interleaving is becoming more and more well known now, but that's a really good chapter that puts forward the evidence for that. Uh, I love I love pretty much anything that Tom Sherrington writes. I think he's a really good writer and really makes me think. Uh, and I really enjoyed his chapter looking at this myth that uh, kind of teacher led instruction and student centred learning are kind of opposites uh, and uh, and work against each other uh, and he really kind of challenges that assumption that there is this dichotomy uh, and he's really good at writing and uh, and uh, and making you think about that and really examining your own views round about that and how instruction should take place in the classroom. The final chapter is really, really good as well by Harry Fletcher Wood, all about, uh, it's called Don't Shoot the Myth Buster, uh, and it's really about how to how to approach people when you hear them kind of quoting something that you know uh, is, is an edgy myth, you know, something that's not quite right, and, it, and it's good and it really resonated with me, you know, I've sat in a, I've sat in a, in a session in, 
uh, with someone who I really, really respect, uh, and they put something up on the, the the screen which I knew was a myth, uh, and then you know, in the end, they kind of pointed to me and said, "Colin, you often don't agree with any, everything I say and any what you say," and I, I just started laughing and I said, "That's complete nonsense," uh, and it's possibly not the best way to approach it. Uh, but uh, Harry Harry Fletcher would gives you some different ways to approach that when you uh, when you hear maybe people that uh, are are kind of talking about these myths as if they are truths and how you can approach that uh, so that that myth hopefully does not propagate. Okay, so, yep, as I said, it's a great little book. I really enjoyed reading it. Uh, the chapters are relatively short, so it's quite easy just to pick up and, and delve into one of the chapters and it makes them really easy kind of to look back on uh, if you want to just kind of refresh yourself on different parts of the book and I would very much recommend it. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. That's it for today. I also need to thank Henry, who spent time on his recording but was prevented from sending due to technology issues, which is really disappointing as his contributions have always been excellent in the past. The next episode in two weeks' time is on Adele Bates' Miss I Don't Give Her. And as ever, I'm still on the lookout for readers to share, so please do get in touch. After that, I'm hoping to cover Joe Face's culture rules. So that's it for now. As usual, please do rate, review and share with your colleagues. Bye. You've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Alternatively, to suggest a book or article or volunteer to contribute to an episode, visit learninglinguist.co.uk forward slash page practice podcast. Thanks go to Kevin McLeod of Incomtech.com for use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade, which are licensed under Creative Commons.